0: So my guest on this podcast is Sean Collins. He writes everywhere at this point. You want to give us a brief CV?
1: Sure. Uh, Mostly a TV critic these days, although I started in comics for the Comics Journal and Wizard. Uh, Lately, I've been at Rolling Stone, Vulture, the New York Observer, Grantland, Pitchfork, Vice, the AV Club, and uh, the New York Times is my latest uh, conquest, which is exciting. Wow. Yeah. Big time.
0: When did that happen?
1: Uh, Tomorrow night it happens. (laughs) For the Mr. Robot premiere.
0: Oh man. I just tweeted out that I'm dreading the premiere of this. I'm I'm really dreading season two. It's it's quite morose. As much as like that kid is so fucking captivating and so good. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I am sure a lot of what's gonna get introduced will seem like it's getting introduced, but it was probably written ahead of time. Like I give him that much of a benefit of the doubt, but um yeah.
1: This season in particular, all of it was written. They had to, since the showrunner and creator was directing all 12 episodes, he had to hand in all of the scripts before they started shooting. Right. So, you know, it was written well in advance.
0: So, yeah, I mean, but it, it's also, it was written with the understanding that they're going to be building this now. You know what I mean? So, yeah, you it, bet. They're definitely going to have like big fucking haymakers of character introductions and all that shit that every show has to go through now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm, don't get me wrong. I, it, it, there's no question; it's the best show to come out in like quite a long time. I would say, True Detective, Boardwalk Empire, shows like that. I think it's I think it's risen above a lot of kind of middling shows that were getting attention by default. Mm-hmm. Um, the last five years, I'm definitely happy about it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch it. I'm sure I'm gonna enjoy it. But it's sort of you're fucked if your show takes off. You're a captive. Just you just become an industry for the next three years. You know, like yeah,
1: there's the not one but two talking robot shows. <laughs> uh, yeah, you become a whole industry, especially if you know you're the USA Network and this is the first thing that you've ever done that anyone's paid any attention to.
0: So the reason uh, Sean and I were actually uh, inspired to talk tonight was we just kind of both. We're serendipitously fed up with everyone is always trying to unpack the 90s over and fucking over again. And there's only like so much shit you can keep taking out of the chest, but they, there's so much that nobody's touching. You know, we have, a, we have an interesting age gap. I, I'm just, a, I think, a few years older than you. The thing that bugs me about what gets gotten wrong is that a lot of the people who are, are doing it are our age. They're like these intentional omissions. It's like the same way whenever people talk about the 70s, they talk about like, you know, fucking punk rock, uh, David Bowie. They talk about like the juiciest shit, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the number one single in the country when Anarchy in the UK came out was fucking Disco Duck by Rick Dees. Look at me. Everyone wants to look back and they're just thinking, you know, Nirvana and Riot Girl and, you know, gangster rap. And the actual fabric of the 1990s very rarely felt like any of that. And the fact that we were both old enough to experience this window of like 88 to 92, which, you know, 92 is sort of the demarcation point of Nirvana exploding. I mean, mm-hmm. the record had been out for a bit and they were really big on the indie scene and Sub Pop already had a really big name um, before they sold them to DGC. But it was, you know, it was very, like, tribal, you know. And I constantly talk about this. I have a podcast that's just coming out around this time with John Daniello Mountain Goats. And we talk about that whole territorial, you know, thing, the territoriality of it. And that one of the first new podcasts, pure podcasts I did with Mora, we talked about the territorial aspect of hair metal. Yeah. But the, the national fabric of radio listening, MTV watching suburban, you know, people who weren't making these, you know, underground scenes happen – that national fabric is so completely fucking different from the way people talk about it. They talk about it like everybody in the 90s was like going to fucking Bikini Kill shows or, or Fergazi shows and it's like, no, there were like 100 people at any of those shows. Mm-hmm. And it was the same 100 people in every fucking town every time they toured. Bikini Kill and we want revolution! Girls Don't Know! Here's a good kickoff point. What was the number one single on the Billboard Hot 100, January 1st, 1990. Give you two guesses.
1: You'll give me two guesses, 1990. I want to say Love Shack or Tom's Diner.
0: You're not far off. You're not far off. Love Shack was 28. Uh, the other guess I would have expected you to make would have been Rhythm Nation. Oh, yeah. Because that record lasted years. I mean, that that had singles for an epoch. But um, no, the number one single on the Hot 100, January 1st, 1990, was Another Day in Paradise by Phil Collins. <laughs> <laughs> the twice
1: Cause it's another day for you. You mean
0: paradise Think about it. Like one of the big things we, we can just go to easily and give voice to this alter nineties? is EMF. That was a national phenomenon. Instantaneously, that song was a number one smash. The second that that came out, it was nuts. It was like when Crazy came out, Danger Mouse. Right. It's almost like a novelty song because it happens so quickly and so fast. Hey, uh, you know, songs like that. That's what Unbelievable was.
1: There was this warp zone that's been kind of completely forgotten because... You know, Stone Roses, my father had the Stone Roses record. I stole it from him years later. But it's not like they made any kind of impact. And then Britpop was kind of a, that was later, and that was, uh, I wouldn't quite say it was a cult thing, but it wasn't really impacting like mainstream American culture either. But there was this window where you got things like EMF and uh, Jesus Jones right here, right now, or... Uh, even Seal, like the first
0: Seal record,
1: there's no room for that anymore. I don't know where those things get like, I don't know what kind of compilations they'll get those get placed on. I don't know what Spotify channels those go on.
0: So, nothing shocking is 87, but it but it, it sort of foreruns grunge in that way. It's like crazy, aggressive, loud guitar music, So it, but it's also drenched in goth reverb, so it's sort of pulling that whole like anglophile you know, Echo and the Bunnymen Cure Kid thing, it's pulling them into this harder music and it explodes. This is really simplistic, but, you know, Ritual was 91, and then Nevermind Shortly Thereafter. In England, it's the same thing. You have the the ass end of baggy, Madchester stuff, like Happy Mondays and Stone Roses, but Mm -hmm. you've got, like, two solid, three solid years before anything happens after that, partially because grunge derails the train. Right. But during that time, Blur is on food, right? Food is the label that did Jesus Jones too. They sold them eventually they, for the U. S. to SBK, which I went on a huge tangent with Mora in that hair metal podcast about SBK, because <laughs> it was just Sony. It was a Sony, like just throwing money at something. But yeah, so before Britpop happens, Oasis doesn't even exist, and Blur are on top of the pops. There's no other way, and she's so high. Like pop scene, got they got screwed because that was right when Come As You Are and Nirvana was like at its peak. Yeah. So pop scene was completely like tone deaf. You know, English kids, British kids were all huge into grunge, like because they were trying to get out of baggy too, right? Mm -hmm. And they didn't have a great path. So unbelievable was spring of '91. Stone Roses, that was like the biggest thing that ever happened at that time. I think it sold 700,000 copies worldwide. Right. Like when we look back at that, we're like that album took over the world. It really didn't cross over. Yeah. That window like 87 to 92 before Nirvana, that's solidly a good three years of 90s. We, we play around with the 90s so fucking much, but like we don't we don't actually talk about what it was like. Like, Guns N' Roses was like, (laughs) use your illusion.
1: That was 91, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was the same fucking month as Nevermind, I think.
1: And I think it's a very narrow window for age, too. I remember feeling at the time that the kids who were born in the year after me, I was born in 1978, the kids who were born in 1979 were the last year of kids where listening to weird music was actually weird. And then my brother was born in 80, and for him, like, Tool... Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Rage Against the Machine, like... That was just what popular music was. He was a white hat, preppy kid, and listens to all the same music I did, but there was none of the cultural, the stuff that got me made fun of by lacrosse players. Like, literally, two-year gap was completely normal.
0: I feel like people talk about the indie shit in the first half of the 90s in the same way they talk about, like, the extremely famous multi-million selling records of the late 90s and the gulf between those two things. I talked about this with Jeff from Thursday in our podcast a bit. The gulf between those two realities is indescribable to somebody who didn't live it. Not, yeah. not that there was anything at stake, but the, f- the whole first half of the 90s, there was a shitload of the 80s we were still getting out of the system. Annie Lennox had that massive record with Y and... Um,
1: Walking on Broken Glass.
0: The VH1 thing, which nobody mm-hmm. nobody even remembers VH1. But you had such a dichotomy between how like old all the 80s bands were getting and their audience was aging with them, that MTV was like, well, we're just gonna have to split ourselves in two. And they made VH1 and then it was like, okay, so all the George Michael and Annie Lennox and all that stuff goes over here. and then Nirvana and you know fucking the Beastie Boys are over here on the other side. You know, end of the road and and all the <laughs> all the like the gangster rap and the like smooth R&B, you could only have one or the other, right? Except for Seal, right. I guess. That was a huge division. Like god, to even get started on that cuz everybody needs two lily white guys talking about hip hop. We need more of that. <laughs> we never tied grunge off. Grunge just bled out. It just kind of became a mode grunge is not hard to play punk was not hard to play when you have a cultural social shift like that it's good for like six months
1: Uh, i'm of the age where i stand by stone temple pilots but for sure i remember that band do you remember dig of course That was the first one where there was like a buzz Bin single and they would play it, that Believe song. And that was the first one of those bands to come along where I was like, you know what? I'm not buying what they're selling. Something, something's off here.
0: You know what's funny? Dig? Were, like, They had so much more credibility than lots of these other bands. Like, I know. <laughs> Silver Chair, That's the one. And yeah. I feel bad because it's like a fucking 15-year-old, you know, Aussie kid who just wants to be Kurt Cobain because he's fucking 15.
1: It's gruesome what they wound up doing to him.
0: Awful, man. I mean, it's so fucked up. He's like, you know, a teenager and he's got all these people and they're just fucking like vampires. It's that fucking gross. Not that I think that they I just don't think he had anybody looking out for him, and how can you at that age, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one I think Candlebox, I think, was the most egregious because his manager was Chris Cornell's wife, Susan Silver, was her name, I think, and she was some big A and R guru, and like they worked in the same shoe store or some shit.
0: That was the funny thing too. Like, I've always hated Soundgarden, and it, it's always been like this big beef with people who think they're completely legit because they are from the same fucking, you know, general region of the country. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's another fucking hair metal band that was just like, hey, you know, Jane's Addiction's doing pretty good. And, and people act like it had to do in Nirvana. Like, everyone who was a hair metal band was adding a little bit of, like, theatrical God machine, whatever. Yeah. You know, goth, you know, to try and get that alternative base. Because, like... Fucking the Cure were in the top twenty, top ten, top five. You know bands like that. Disintegration. What the fuck? Nothing sounded right. like that. Right. On that first, uh, that first chart in nineteen ninety, Lullaby was still on the fucking Hot one hundred, baby.
1: I feel like you can see now, and something I couldn't see when I was a kid, and and this was being presented to me as this movement. You know, I remember they had the. I think I think it was the guys from Alice in Chains were on MTV, and they went to a record store in <laughs> Seattle, and they flipped through yes. the CDs, I and remember they're like, this.
0: Ted. And it's like, then you find the footage of him when he's in his like total Hanoi Rocks cover band and he's all. "Mm."
1: Yeah. And it's like, now you can see these bands didn't sound anything alike, even if they were like playing at the same places or knew each other. In Soundgarden, I love Bad Motorfinger. That was a huge, huge record for me when I was like in literally eighth grade, but uh, this work of alchemy to turn these disparate bands with like completely different roots and completely different influences and different sounds really into this thing called grunge. You can see in Creed these different elements, but when you go back to the source, they're separate.
0: For me at the top, right at the start, we were just like, oh here it fucking is. When 10 came out, we were just like, oh we were fucking waiting for this shit. You know, it's fucking great. So Leonard Skinner's here to fucking save the day with his fucking army shorts and his distressed plaid shirt. Man, I mean, you couldn't have, we couldn't have fucking hated Pearl Jam anymore. They were so classic rock. And, you know, Nirvana were not. Nirvana's whole lineage is like up and down the neck, 4 4 rock and roll, you know? And, and yeah. it, rock and roll only sounds threatening in certain modes, like in certain times. And it was one of those times where it really did because it was just like, you know.
1: CNC Music Factory.
0: One of the pieces about grunge was that in the early 90s and the late 80s, you had a massive generational overthrow at MTV. Not just on camera, but in terms of the people who were producing the shows and the people who were running MTV and all of these record labels, all this shit turned over in the 90s.
1: Like Z100 went like alternative wall to wall. Yeah. Uh, so we would listen to DRE almost as like a religious experience. I mean, that's where like every Saturday night you could hear join in the chant like, <laughs> until like 1998. <laughs> Yeah, you know? <laughs> baby.
0: No, and then, but that's again, to the point of the whole like territorial aspect of it, it's also social territory, right? So the, the charts and FM, major FM radio and MTV are still like, you know, toe the wet sprocket.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: People will interchangeably talk about like the gin blossoms, right? Cause they sound like a jangly REM band. They were a fucking massive band. They were like a top fucking 25. In one point they were a top 10 and there's no aspect of all the indie shit, you know, fucking super chunk whatever that sold dick man I mean you're talking like 20,000 copies, 50,000 copies Nation, You think anybody bought a fucking Codeine record when they were still together? <laughs> Sebado? Like, but now, you know, today everyone talks about, oh, Dinosaur Jr. is the classic example, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Dinosaur Jr. They were totally not. No, man. They were, I mean, they were on Warner, Blank Me Negro, but like they sold shit. Nobody. Yeah. You heard, you heard Feel the Pain. Yeah, exactly. 95 it. when it's already over and, and it's yep. just a completely, it's a complete shit show. The, the, the only band that you can really point to and say, yeah, it actually, happen like that, I guess, in terms of rock is the lemonheads because that did sell like fucking crazy. Right. And right. he was on, you know, he was in people magazine as you know, sexiest man alive and all that shit. So you know th- it's well, just he was
1: very handsome. I mean in all fairness. <sighs> oh
0: God, I can't talk about Evan Dando enough. I know,
1: again. I know. I know it's I know it's I know it's personal.
0: Look you. I Defend car button cloth that's where I'm at so you don't even want to go there but you know like look at look at all the other people in that Boston scene that had records out and had deals the same look at fucking throwing muses Real Ramona yeah it's fucking it's one, like one of my favorite records of the 1990s honestly I, I go back to that and I like it even more every time
1: You know, you made a really interesting point earlier when you said that for people your age, which is, I mean, and again, we're talking about I'm talking about the narcissism of small differences. It's the narcissism of small age differences, but they really did make a difference because you were able to contextualize what was going on because you existed for longer as a sentient, thinking <laughs> uh, audience and consumer of culture than I did. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, it, it's having some sense of what was going on in the '80s. With all those like mid-tempo bands like Echo and the Bunny Man and Psych Dog Furs and all that shit. Right, right. Having some sense of like college rock being this sort of tier that you heard it on college radio and you listen to it in, in dorms and at parties and stuff. It, it, got, it did definitely get weird. Can, can we actually control this? Yeah. Like, like you said, you got a white hat who's listening to Tool. There were lots of white hats who were like checking out The Cure. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when Wish came out, it was like, I mean, I went to those shows and there were lots of white hats there. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It did break up that idea, like you said, the sense of there being some kind of cult or outsider status or, you know, being, uh, have you heard of that or whatever? Like all that stuff, all those Mm -hmm. social cues, they, they did sort of break up. And that's yeah. why it got so pretentious and so by the book. You know, this is how you behave as a punk rock. You know, you have to have integrity. And I, you know, I'm Fugazi and I'm going to lecture you about bumping into somebody for 45 fucking minutes. <laughs> and, you know, some of that was valuable. Riot Girl, I think, was extremely valuable for the people who... Perpetrated it and for the young girls who it lent a sense of empowerment mm-hmm. um, and the zine networks and all that stuff. And it started some, you know, good sort of semi national conversations on, you know, chat shows and shit.
1: I think the seeds of a lot of what you're talking about existed, you know, as much as I want to sanctify my own experience of listening to uh, alternative music when that meant something, man. <laughs> um, you know, at the same time that I was discovering Jane's Addiction a little bit earlier and REM a little bit earlier, uh, Nirvana and you know, all the big grunge bands. I was also going through my dad's vinyl records and listening to Led Zeppelin for the first time and Jethro Tull for the first time. So I saw this continuity that, that kind of freaked you out like when Pearl Jam came along and you were like, ah, oh, fuck, you just shift that like one band over and call it, it's so easy to blur. And so you can see, you know, if I could do that at the time, now when you go to like, you know, the bar that I go to work, the alternative station is like Roll To Me by Delamitri. And <laughs> the gin blossoms and, and you know, the and, and, yeah, yeah. And Creed and, and then and Wonderwall and all these kinds of things. And it's so easy to make it into this sort of like gooey morass of meaninglessness. And, you know, maybe because I'm recognizing that tendency in myself, but it bothers me when I see people not doing the work of pulling that goo apart. These things had different functions at the time. These things came from different places. These things had a different business infrastructure behind them. The fans came to them in different ways. Like that's worth that's worth pulling
0: at. They'll look at, you know, Lisa Loeb, All Four One and all of these like Just massive glistening pop hits. They'll they'll look at SWV and these like great R and B club type uh, songs. Yeah, and they'll treat it the same way. Like Four Non Blondes, great example. There's all these one hit wonders in the '90s that get treated the same way as the '80s. Mm -hmm. You can't have both things at one. You can't pretend. You can't pretend that all these like you know indie labels and seven inches and all this bullshit and zines and all this stuff. There was never any sense of. Succeeding, And that, that was Steve Albini's whole thing with the problem with music. He was just like, when did we start thinking in terms of careers? This yeah. is something we did for fun. It's a social impetus. It's not a fucking professional impetus. I guess I make that point because it never crossed over. There, you know, Nirvana was huge. Total fucking anomaly. Just the first one. The, you know, the Sex Pistols, the first one. They're getting away with doing both things at once. Like, the 90s was the last action hero. Like, it was so much more 80s in terms of mass culture, then people who didn't live through it can understand. And it doesn't mean that they're wrong or that, you know, they should be castigated for for not understanding history that they didn't live through. But the people who are publishing these pieces are my age. You're publishing something. Like, it's not cute that your 21-year-old intern has a foggy memory of hearing, you know, creep on the radio or something. And Mm -hmm. they fabricated this whole imaginary... Relevance and in huge social impact of that has no bearing on the reality of the time. I just see that getting promoted because it's cute and it has a kind of like direst, you know, honesty in its naivety. Yeah, I just don't see. I don't see anyone doing like doing work.
1: Well, that was to me the most dire thing about the Pitchfork '80s list. I realize we're shifting decades here. Um, was not even the list itself whatever my problems with it were like the total absence of Vince Clark. It was the reaction.
0: Wait, what do you mean? To- like Yaz? There was no
1: Vince Clark at all. There was no Yaz, yes, no, no erasure. And there was no,
0: you're fucking with me. There's no, nope. Ola is not in pitchforks top 180s. They did. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking Believe me, that was no, the first fucking
1: thing I looked for.
0: That's crazy. Cause I know, I mean, I know, I, I know Ryan likes, you know, he, he, understands that Vince Clark is an incredibly important, innovative producer and songwriter. He's like the most important one of the most important figures of the 80s in any case.
1: Right. Gay men, I don't think gay men as a whole fared very well in that list, which is a whole other topic that
0: I I God Jesus. I got I, I mean I gotta tell you, I did turn off, I mean I legitimately did turn off paying attention to the site once they were, you know, going down the road to being sold. I just, it was pointless, you know, mm. I'm screaming at a wall, you know, the only well, people I really went after was like Brandon. The people I knew were like good where I was like, maybe they have like a hint of, of awkwardness or shame right. about this.
1: Well, I mean, I, I don't even, I don't have the, obviously I don't have the history or, or the baggage is a, is a term with baggage. But oh, the it's baggage.
0: That, no, it's baggage.
1: Well, right. The thing that bothered me more even than the list was the defense mountain of the list, which is, well, This is what the writers of today feel was important about the 80s. Therefore, that is what's important about the 80s. To me, that's nuts. That's ahistorical. You know, if it were about something more important than pop music, I think people would freak the fuck out.
0: You right. Know, if you did, like like if, if top, you were talking
1: about World War II. Yeah. And you, you know,
0: like, the top 50 most important moments in, in American history in the 1960s and, you know, Kent State's not on there.
1: Right, exactly. And, you know, and that was really troubling to me, you know, and it's like that's not an argument.
0: We're sort of pointing the finger at editors, right?
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: And the lack of actual editorial pedigree. Nobody is getting an education in being an editor. They're just getting promoted up to telling people what to do. That's historically not new. I saw that when I worked at People Magazine. I saw people who were prestige, legastic editors. Zolda Motley and these scions of editorial dexterity and and just cultural touch. You don't have to be that good to not fuck this up. (coughs) everybody's just fucking it up Mm. like they're okay so their attitude toward the idea of injecting some historical perspective is i want to have a 20 year old listen to a really controversial record that came out when they weren't born and tell me what they think of it you know like Right. Hey, here's. I want you to go home and listen to. There's a riot going on. Just you know, tell me what you think. And then they're going to go publish this fucking kid being like, uh, "It kind of sounds shitty. I don't know. I don't really like funk music. It's not my thing. You know, like what the fuck? You can't sacrifice kids like that.
1: And now they're not even being sacrificed. It's different than when the NPR intern did the fucking thing about it takes a nation of millions. Now there's like this huge defense mounted about like you humorless olds, like, don't you understand that the youngs are taking over and they have different priorities? And it's like, that's true. And that I can understand, but don't sick them on some record that you know, as the editor is better than the treatment that you're giving it. Right. And you know what I mean? That's what bothers me.
0: Yeah. The De La thing caused obviously a big rift inside the hip hop criticism in that community. I mean you had people who had historically been super tolerant of everybody and were like, We're not we're not gonna tear each other apart, we're not gonna tear each other down, like we're gonna talk these things out. This is an inclusive community, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously not a mindset I've ever had, but I, I, res- <laughs> I completely you know, completely respect that because it's, it's been fucking hard to have substa- I mean, is there a fucking black-owned music publication right now that isn't just paying to have mixtapes reviewed well? Like, mm. the whole, like, source, back-in-the-day, Hot 97 shit, that's all over, man. Yeah. There really are not good, strong, independent voices in hip-hop. There are, you know, Jeff and Weiss and, and um, So Many Shrimp. There's others, there's others in the, this field that are starting to get so frustrated with how cut-and-dried, payola hip hop reportage and music coverage is it's so bad that they're pissed which is that's why pitchfork started the whole like spin new york media thing was so fucking elitist that we were like fuck this and that's why kids had started zines back in the 90s same thing isolation from the communication channel i think i think that's where the good shit's going to happen um it's already happening but i I think there's going to be actually a potential commercial explosion there in terms of new voices there, which is great. But it's not like you have to take the kid in the back and clockwork orange the nineties at them. But I think you need to have conversations with your writers. And when they have an idea, you need to you don't just water it, you gotta fucking talk it out with them. Right. But it's just not happening.